0: What is good? Welcome to the Always Gaining Podcast. My name is Austin Goodwin. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you're here to learn about lifting, nutrition, habit building, or productivity, you are in the right place. If not, stick around. You still might learn something worthwhile. If you like the podcast, please leave a five-star review on whichever platform you are listening to. I hope you enjoy Welcome back to the fourth episode of the Always Gaining Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Goodwin, and this one is a special one to me because on the day this is posted, October 12th, it is my birthday, and I want to take a moment to thank my family, my friends, my supporters, who have helped me out along the way during my 24 years. Birthdays always help me see things from a greater perspective, and the truth is, none of us get to where we are without others' help. 24 is still a very young age, and I'm constantly learning and unlearning things in my life. But 24 is also a respectable amount of time where you become aware of the parts of your character that you know aren't really changing, but also the parts of your character that you're aspiring to be. I like to think by this age, and it's very general, that we know what we're going for. So in respect to both my youth and my life experience, I want to hit on 24 life lessons that I've learned in 24 years. Lists like this, and trust me, I read into them. They're typically chocked full of lofty and aspirational goals and sayings and quotables from God knows who, but you rarely get the context that you need to apply such life advice to your own life. I want to give you insights from my life, what I've been through, as well as what others around me have gone through that I've observed. I don't believe in taking advice from people who haven't actually done what they're talking about. I mean, mechanics would be terrible if all they did was study how engines work instead of getting their hands dirty. So in respect to taking advice, I also don't believe in dishing out advice about stuff that I don't know about or I don't have a connection to. And for anybody that's older that might be listening, you might laugh at this because, you know, it's true. It's very difficult for many people around my age to say, hey, I, I don't know the answer to this. I don't have all the answers. I don't think it's pretty typical that you hear that from a lot of people, at least not the unsuccessful people. But anyways, if you're giving me the privilege of your attention, I don't want to abuse it with a complete crap storm of advice that has no experience and no substance behind it. Enough with the rambling, let's get into it. Side note, these lessons are in no particular order, no priority, just in the order that I began writing and taking notes on them. So lesson number one, and of course dealing with the number one, do the most important thing in your day first. And this one is always fun for me because like many of you, the most important thing isn't always the most invigorating or passionate thing on my schedule. And get that. And I have to say this, find the balance. You have to know when to call yourself on your BS when you're putting something off, but you also have to know when starting your day off with a particular task, even if it is the most important one, isn't the best for you. For me, I in this rule to be Do the most creative thing in my day first. The morning time is when I'm most motivated, when I'm completely fresh in my mind, I have a blank slate. So it's the best time for me to create, and that just goes for me personally. So if I have a design-heavy project or something with an extensive amount of copywriting, it's definitely the first thing that I'm tackling. But this rule of doing the most important thing comes down to managing your mental load. Ask any procrastinator out there. Sitting around and waiting to do something is just as exhausting as doing the thing. In this case, ripping off the band-aid is almost always the answer. And if it's the most important band-aid, you better get to ripping. The mental relief that you get from doing that task for the rest of the day is super underrated and it will pay dividends to the rest of your day's tasks. Going into number two, calmness should be the first emotion that you strive for. And I'm a firm believer in calmness as an appropriate reaction to everything, even BS. That doesn't mean I always do it. I, I'm known to have a short temper for bullshit, honestly. But I try really hard. Let's look at it this way, right? What if someone said, you should absolutely make choices when you're vehement, when you're pissed off, when you're an emotional disaster? Nobody has ever said that. Calmness is a tactic to reduce our emotions from outpacing our logic and our rationale. When we get absorbed by our emotions, we tunnel vision. It's pretty obvious. And every single person knows this on the outside looking in. They know that getting angry is never the solution. But we do it. We've all had moments where we reacted instead of proactively considering a situation. I've definitely said hurtful things I'd never consider saying in a normal state of mind because I reacted with anger, not calmness. So how do you pursue calmness? You can't just say, okay, body and mind, be calm. You have to have cues. And personally, this is where meditation has helped me a lot. And not the whole Buddha sitting cross-legged with incense burning in the background type of meditation. I mean, real practical meditation being able to stop in your tracks and calm yourself down. That type of meditation. And just remember that there are physical cues to calmness that can initiate those hard-to-reach mental cues. For me, breathing is number one. And I'm sitting behind this podcast, and I'm not speaking in front of anybody, yet I'm nervous. Your heart rate increases when you're thinking passionately, when you're doing passionate things, whether that passion is good or bad. The key is bringing down that whole beating heart in your chest type of sensation. And calm breathing has probably kept me from getting fired at this point, honestly. There have been many situations where I've just wanted to snap, but being able to stop in my tracks has saved me a lot of face. Also, untensing your body is a big thing too, and we don't notice our tension until it hurts us. Unclenching your jaw, stopping the hunch in your back or the arch in your back, the tensing of your back stopping yourself from being closed up and cross-legged, opening your body up in every sense of the matter can really help calm you down as well. And these are two big things for me that I have to do on almost a daily process because I have had some anger management issues before, but calmness has helped me work around those issues. Shifting from ourselves and more towards other people, number three is being the first person to give trust. And whenever I say that I do this, or that I recommend this to people, I always get the typical, well, trust is earned, and you can't trust everybody, man. And this is the most common association with trust, and I I think it's wrong. But in reality, it's also true, but in a different context. That was a lot of buts right there. But for me, (laughs) it's you've earned my trust until you give me a reason to take it away. It's not a... You have to earn my trust. It's, you've got my trust automatically. Now, give me a reason to take it away. And here's the power in giving trust to people first. It forces people to show their true colors. When you actually, genuinely put trust and faith in the people, you're no longer motivated by your hope and ambition that this person does something to earn that type of trust. You stop seeing people through rose-colored glasses and you actually can see people's motives and actions for what they are. You can observe how people use or abuse your trust when you give it to them instead of making them put up a facade to earn it. If people have bad intentions, they will slip up eventually as long as you're actually watching and actually give them the trust to do so. Lesson number four is there is endless power in saying the question, Why? I don't think people say why enough, and it's often because we have this convoluted idea that if we stand around and ask why all day long, nothing will get done, and I can agree with that. This is true, but life is rarely a reality of these extremes that we set in our minds. People don't actually stand around and go, why, 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 all day long, If you don't understand why, and I mean truly understand the why behind what you do, the work you do is passionless and honestly pointless. Because if it's not benefiting your soul and your mind, and it's only benefiting other people, then really all it's do is hurting you. Let's say your boss snaps on you at work, right? Why? Just just ask why. It's not because he or she is a jerk, which is probably the first level association of why, the real and true, authentic why lies beyond our first thoughts of what why is. Your boss probably doesn't actually want to be a jerk. The real why might be because they're feeling a lot of pressure and tension. But why are they feeling pressure and tension? Maybe their parent is in the hospital. Maybe their pet of six, seven, eight years passed away. Maybe you get where I'm going. The real why isn't because of you or even because of them. When you ask why more than once, it allows you better understanding, better empathy, better certainty. Don't just do this with other people, do it with yourself. Why am I feeling tired right now? Oh, it's because I didn't sleep well. No crap, you didn't sleep well, but don't just chalk it up there. That's where most people stop, and that's why most people never make change. Why didn't I sleep well? Well, because I was on my phone for an hour in bed. And why is that? because I'm bored or I'm not working hard enough or I'm trying to escape something in my life. And we'll stop there. There can be a million reasons why, honestly, but asking why allows you to reverse engineer many problems in your life and in others' lives that may be affecting you. And when you can get to a point where you can make change that makes sense to you by asking the question why, that's when why matters. So on the whole psychological mental train that we're going down here, Let's go to lesson number five, which is, if you look good, you feel well. And if you feel well, you perform well. And I used to not believe in this at all, honestly. As a broke kid growing up, you try not to put value into things that you can't have. It's a miserable thing to do. But as I've come into adulthood, I've realized that performance is mental work just as much as it is hard work. And my personal bias growing up the way I did made this lesson one that was really hard for me to learn, but wow is it true. Looking good isn't just a superficial thing that people do, Okay, maybe it is, but you'll be surprised how often it's not just that. Looking good is a testament to yourself, that you care, and caring goes a long way, not just about others, but about ourselves. Ask yourself this question, do you want to be friends or workers, or let's go as far as being a life partner. with? People who don't take care of themselves. I think that you should aspire to be the type of person that you would want to have a drink with at a bar. Or that, that you would want to invite over to share a table with you during the holidays. That you would want to say, I do too, honestly. There is undeniable confidence when you finally figure out what it feels like to look good. And not just you think you look good, but you know you look good a clean haircut, clothes that fit perfectly, having your own style and rocking the hell out of it. Gentlemen, this is more on you, honestly. Ladies, have this figured out for the most part. Shout out to Aaron Marino and David Dallas Morenas for turning around my mentality on what it means to be an alpha in this generation and starting with taking care of yourself and making yourself look as good as possible for your situation, for wherever it is in your life but for ladies and gentlemen also remember that you can put all that work into yourself for other people or you can do it for you and it's your choice but when you do it for yourself it will pay off when it comes to your relationship with other people so let's get out of our heads a little bit and go into lesson number six which is if you're living for the weekend you've got your life twisted in Gary V completely changed my mind on this when I was in college you know how college is it's go to class party repeat or that's what society wants you to believe it is we can't help it we are conditioned socially to hate work work your nine to five Wednesday is a hump day Friday is the last day of work the weekend is great man Monday suck these things are almost as American as apple pie but truly every day is a blessing And if you're waking up dreading a particular day, a particular job, a particular task, you've got to twist it. Now, get it? There are days that are really hard. I've had a couple of hard days recently myself. We're human. But honestly, ask yourself, does the notion of Friday excite you more than Tuesday? And it's okay if it does. That's cool. But going back to lesson number four on the list, just ask yourself, why? That being said, I highly recommend Googling Gary Vee Living for the Weekend. He and his team put together an original film by Gary himself that sums up this idea better than I ever could. Moving on now, I saved lucky number seven for my favorite topic, fitness. Lesson number seven is fitness is so much more than diet and exercise. And it took me a while to figure out why I'm so attracted to people who are into fitness and not just a weird like oh I think you're hot type of attraction but I genuinely gravitate towards people who have fitness as an interest. Fitness is a statement of the type of person you are more than anything else. It's obvious. It's in your face. It's also one thing that can't be faked. There's an entire industry dedicated to deceiving people into believing they can fake their way into being fit. But really, fitness is about hard work, consistently, over a long time. It's a statement that you're the type of person who looks complacency and comfort in the face and laughs at it. And there's no confusion about fitness. You either do care about pushing yourself, about eating right, or you don't. I've found that this dedication and passion tends to bleed over into other areas of a person's life. Now, not always. There are meatheads who never aspire to anything outside of the gym. There are shredded people who just want to run the rat race and use the gym as an escape where all their passion goes. But you cannot deny that a consistent life of exercise, eating right, and taking care of your body isn't going to have the chance to foundationally impact your life for the better. Now, moving on to lesson number eight, you can learn from everyone if you try. You don't just have to learn from your mentors or parents or role models. Each and every person that comes into contact with you is an opportunity for you to learn. You just have to open your eyes to it. You can learn about yourself, about other people, about life, your career, whatever situation it is that you want to apply it to. And there's more truth in this now in the digital and social distancing age that we live in. Everybody's online, right? And... Believe it or not, everyone actually is an expert in something. Somebody will always be better than you in holding a conversation, in getting social media followers, in not being addicted to their phone, or just being happy. In our pursuit of trying to be the best at everything, we can become nothing. But this shouldn't stop us from trying to become better people. And that starts with paying attention. Every person is a walking summary of everything everything they've been through and no not every person's life is some glorious adventure that you would see in a movie but as long as there is value in every human's life then there is something to be learned from every human that doesn't necessarily mean that you're learning about what to do from other people sometimes the greatest lessons are about what not to do i grew up and learned three foundational lessons on what not to do from my own family don't do drugs don't stop learning and don't find yourself in a bad crowd. All of these decisions in my family led to some pretty crazy routes in their respective lives. And they taught me a lot about, hey, don't be as stupid as I was. And believe it or not, that's a really good lesson most times. On the topic of trying to learn from everyone and the process of learning itself, we're gonna hit on lesson number nine here, which is 1% is greater than 100%. And yes, I'm from Alabama, and I'm not that bad at math, I promise, but 1 is greater than 100. And I went over this in my last podcast about why fitness sucks for most people. 1% being greater than 100% is the idea behind habit building. It's the idea that 1% adds up to 100% if you do 1% 100 times, which is a lot of 1s and 100s there. But, but I think you get the idea. Very rarely do you have an opportunity to make a 100% jump in who you are and what you do in your life. And if you do make a jump like that, it's incredibly difficult to sustain. Let's say someone smoked 100 cigarettes a day, which (laughs) sounds ridiculous, but just go with me here. Do you think they would have success with trying to sustain immediately quitting smoking, going from 100 cigarettes a day to no cigarettes? Probably not. But if they went from 100 cigarettes a day to 99 cigarettes a day, then 99 to 98, and so on, they'd probably have a little bit better luck trying to sustain quitting smoking. Now take this ridiculous analogy and apply it to your life. Lofty ambitions and goals are about drastic change, which we all want. We we do want to drastically change, but very rarely is that practical or sustainable. Meaningful, life-changing habits and behaviors are about incremental change, and no, it's not sexy, it's very boring, but it is what works. Speaking about things that work, lesson number 10 is a very simple one. Please, make your bed. From the time that we can comprehend responsibility and having discipline as, as teeny little kids, this is one of the first things that we learn. Make your bed. Yet it's mind-blowing how many people don't do this childhood essential thing that we learn. Making your bed isn't just about tidiness and aesthetics making your room look good. Making your bed is the snowball at the top of the hill. And it's also a cushion for a bad day. And I'm stealing all this directly from Rico Incarnati. I-N-C-A-R-N-A-T-I. Rico Incarnati on Instagram. Awesome dude but this is one message he consistently reinforces is the importance of making your bed. So thank you Rico for giving me the dialogue on this. But making your bed gives you your first accomplishment for the day, and sometimes that's all you need to get the productivity train rolling. You don't have to make your bed. It's not like the world is going to end if you don't make your bed, but doing it is the most simple act of discipline which can have a great ripple effect on the rest of your day, your week, whatever. Also, if you have a horrible day, you can't get anything done at all, you're all over the place emotionally, guess what? At least you got your bed made. No matter what, your day is not a total loss if you go to sleep in a bed that's already made up. So please, just make your bed. I'm going to take a small shift here and go to one of the most important lessons that Several, several people in my life, several role models have taught me. Lesson number 11 is kindness is the answer. You'll never regret being nice to people, even if they don't deserve it. There's nothing more satisfying than hearing, hey, hey man, I was a real jerk before, but I appreciate you not laying into me. I was I was in a really bad place in, in my mind and in my heart and... I just really appreciate it because I didn't deserve that kindness. And yes, that's actually a conversation that I've had with somebody before. That's why most people who aren't kind act the way they do. They're mentally weak or they're tired or they're going through things that you can't even see or begin to understand. Kindness is not getting angry with a waiter for getting your order wrong. And to you, that may be as simple as, okay, just don't be a crappy person. But that waiter can be having a really hard time to make ends meet. And because you were nice to that waiter, and you were the one person in the day that didn't go off on them, they decided against abusing drugs. They've been going home, getting high, doing whatever it is because they hate their life, they hate their job, and there's really just no hope to move up. But because you were actually nice to that person at work today, he decided not to do drugs today. And it gave him just a little sliver of hope. And this takes him down the road of, okay, I'm going to try to get into my online business again. I'm going to try to do this and that because I'm feeling better. Which eventually could possibly, you never know, actually change his life. Simply because you were a decent person and that niceness can have a ripple effect that you will never see the end to. But that's why you do it. This example is a little out there, it's a little vague and ambitious, I get it, but you electing to be kind to others is good for humanity, and most importantly, it's good for you and your heart. Your body feels twice as heavy when you're poisoned with this bitterness and anger at the world, and I know this because I've been there before. I've been this bitter, angry person who just found a reason to be pissed off about things, find a reason to be kind to people. Not an excuse to be whatever emotion it is you're thinking about being. And lesson number 11 is foundationally about how you act as a person. But number 12, lesson number 12, is really about other people. Lesson number 12 is having zero expectations of others gives you freedom you've never had before. And I don't want anyone listening to confuse this with being a pessimist. It's not. Having zero expectations doesn't mean that There's not having hope in people or humanity or in the good of people. Having zero expectations means one thing. Your strength comes from you, not from others. Many people who are unsatisfied with their life come from a place of expectation. It's entitlement or it's privilege. It's one of these things speaking. They think the world, people, their environment owes them something. And guess what? The world doesn't owe you shit. Having no expectations frees you up to actually understanding other people. When people do things you want them to do, that's great, and you should probably keep them around. But when people disappoint you or do something less than optimal for your situation, having no expectations keeps you from getting mad or resentful with these type of people, and in the long term, it just makes you a better person. It allows you to have empathy for people expectations can make you vulnerable as a person it can lead to you believing that the world owes you and that the world should be a certain way to cater to you that people owe you their attention and gratitude and when you can let go of these expectations you can move with true happiness within yourself number 13 way off the wall completely has nothing to do with what we've talked about number 13 is know how to change a flat tire and know how to drive a stick shift, which is two-in-one, but just go with me here. You don't have to know how an internal combustion engine works. You don't have to know it's important to lube the seals on your oil filter when you change the oil. You don't have to know to check your fuses first if your car isn't starting. But everybody, at some point, will be in a flat tire situation. Whether it's your car, someone else's car, or a stranger who just looks like they're having a bad day, and you want to help, because... You know, you're going with that whole kindness thing that we talked about. And for many people, I'm sure that they have someone to call if they got a flat tire. They could call a tow truck, call mom, dad, a friend, whatever. But show me a person who can't change a flat tire, and I'll bet they've never been in a crisis, problem-solving type of situation before. Changing a flat tire isn't glorious. You have to get your hands dirty. You have to get down underneath. But it's more scary than it is difficult for most people. People just think it's hard. It's not actually hard at all. For the stick shift, driving a stick shift teaches you patience with yourself and with the outside world. Having to control a clutch and make your driving moves based on other people's actions makes you hyper aware of what's going on on the road and more importantly, the people who are on the road. You can learn who a person is by how they drive their cars, honestly. A stick shift is a skill that will probably go extinct in the next 30 years, but I think there's a certain wisdom and discipline you learn from driving stick shift that translates to much more safety and patience on the road and with yourself as a driver. And that might just have effects in other places besides a moving vehicle. So that was a fun, silly little analogy, but I think underneath the silly analogy for what it may be, It's a very serious topic about being able to take care of your own problems and being able to move in the world around you based on what other people are doing. Number 14, lesson number 14, is dedicated to my dad's number one lesson to me as a kid. Lesson 14 is you shouldn't have a battle of wits with a person that's unarmed. And this used to be a funny saying to me because I thought it meant Hey, you're smarter than other people, so don't try arguing with them, which holds some truth in some situations. But what it really means to me now, unless someone really, truly knows you, your situation, what's going on in your life, their opinion isn't very relevant, so don't try to change it. A teacher isn't going to listen to a plumber about how kids should be taught. An ad executive isn't going to listen to a mechanical engineer on how to deliver effective pitches. In the gym, I have years more experience than most people walking around in there. That's just how it is. I'm not going to listen to some 18-year-old high school boy on how you should eat chicken and rice for every meal to make gains. I'm not even going to try to argue against him on that. You shouldn't have a battle of wits with a person that's unarmed. It means pick your battles and don't waste your energy if you can tell where a conversation is going to go. My dad taught me how to predict how people could react or think to certain things in multiple different perspectives. And in doing that, he showed me that most times, you're better off just keeping your mouth shut if someone is putting out a bunch of ignorance. Being right sometimes isn't worth the energy. On the note of other people's opinions, I wanna hit lesson number 15, which is you're in control of your mind, and that's about it. By the time we get out of high school, and start facing some of the real adult world, I think most of us come to understand that a lot of life is just random. To quote many bumper stickers in the 1990s, shit happens. And we can drive ourselves crazy with the uncertainty of life. And there are people who run their entire lives with this uncertainty. Why try doing good if bad things are going to happen? Why try when we're inevitably going to fail? Yada, yada, yada. At some point, if we're working functioning, improving adults, we have to embrace life's uncertainty. And it's never 100%. We're programmed to operate out of fear of uncertainty. It's biological more than it is anything. We want to stabilize and create as predictable of an environment as possible. Because it's comfortable. And comfortable is safe. And so on and so on. What I challenge you to do is embrace discomfort. Discomfort. Openly seek situations where you're not going to be comfortable, but the consequences mean nothing. Because life eventually will come crashing into you like an ocean. I promise, if it hasn't done that, it will. And if it has already, I know you're nodding your head right now saying amen. When you learn that you can't control life, you can truly gain control of your mind, or you have the opportunity to. Because your mind is your anchor. When everything else is crashing around you like those waves in the ocean, you have to rely on your anchor. You are not what happens to you in life. You do not become that. What you become is your reaction to life. Please remember that. And I've talked about all these things to improve yourself, things that I've done to improve myself and I've learned, but I want to come back out a little bit and go into people's perceptions of you. Lesson number 16 is you make two impressions, what people think of you and how they think that you think of yourself. And the latter informs the former. How people think that you think of yourself is going to impact what people think of you. I read this recently, but it echoes many lessons about selflessness and humility that I was brought up with just being a Southern dude. It's one thing to say that first impressions are critical. We hear this in college all the time. Even in high school, we hear this. And first impressions are critical. But after you get the first impression, then what? You got your foot in the door. But now you have to convince people not to throw you out of the door once you get inside of it. How do you feel about people who think they are too good for others? Think of someone you absolutely just detest. And you can't say, well, I don't detest anybody. I don't hate anybody. There's always one person that you just cannot stand. They're probably full of themselves, right? We don't like people that think they're the hot shit. It's one thing to hold yourself to a high standard and be confident and put out this confidence into the world. It's another thing to hold yourself above other people. I was raised to believe that we all have our demons. We all have our issues. And sure, some people do more good in the world than others. They might be smarter or nicer, but we all weren't dealt the same hand in life. And that goes both ways, from privilege or not having anything... That's going to affect how you are as a person, good or bad. So don't think of yourself as any better than anyone else. And I had to learn this lesson in high school and after I graduated. I thought that just because I was more intelligent than most people I grew up around, that I was better than they were. And that's just being critical of myself, and it's simply not true. Now, I may have more book smarts or computer smarts than some of my buddies back home, some of the people that I graduated with, but you better believe that they can run a trot line, they can hunt deer, take care of their homes, do mechanical things, and so many more other things way better than I can do it. I'm no better or worse than they are, and when you start treating people as your equals, you get a lot better responses than acting better than other people. And as a note to anybody back home that I may have struck the wrong way with behaving the way that I did, I am sorry for that. We all grow up a little bit differently, and we all have to come to this realization eventually. But I really respect the people who, even in all my flaws, have still treated me the same way. And I've learned a lot from you doing that. You could even say I'm grateful, which leads to lesson number 17. Gratitude is a muscle that we should work out every day. Y'all know that I love lifting metaphors, but this one really holds true to me. People often tell me that I come off as a very happy person that has their stuff together. And I can agree with the happiness part, and sometimes the second part, but not really. I'm just trying to have my stuff together. But happiness is relative to the perspective of the person. The idiot is always smarter than the genius, if you ask me. For me, I default to gratitude when I feel unhappy. It's another way of saying check your privilege, but in a way that isn't meant to demean or try to equivocate people's struggles. Gratitude for me, first and foremost, starts with waking up in the morning and knowing that I have my health. I have the opportunity to put work in, and I have the freedom to do so. Being a human is the best thing in the universe that you could possibly be. As Gary Vee says, you could have been born a tree. Start from there if you have nothing else. But for me, I have a job. One that I feel utilizes something that I love to do. I have a body that I love. I have a perspective and approach in my life that I am so grateful for. The people I do have in my life are authentic and they try to help me. I have food to eat in my fridge. I have a bed to sleep in. I have my own vehicle and freedom to come and go as I please. I don't have to worry about my town or my city getting raided by terrorists if I go to sleep. Or I don't have to worry about being sold into sex trafficking. I have clean water to drink. I am a college graduate, the first in my family. I have a system that I can actually succeed in if I put the work in. And I think you get the point. The moments where I get the feeling down on myself, I default into what I do have. Learn to default into gratitude more often. Don't trivialize your struggles, but put your struggles in perspective of what you already have. Like my mama said, I don't let nobody feel bad for themselves. Lesson number 18 is a fun one for me because it's one that in the past year has really shifted my mindset on some of the commonly held beliefs that I grew up with. It's a quote from the great Brene Brown, a professional speaker and doctor on vulnerability and courage. Ladies, I especially recommend Brene Brown to you all, but she's a great read for anyone at any age. Lesson number 18 is the quote, vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation, creativity, and change, End quote. Vulnerability still has a negative connotation in our social spheres, especially for men. It's commonly mistaken as a synonym for weakness. You know, find the vulnerability in your opponents because it's all a great big war, right? And we're all just still throwing spears and stones at each other. Vulnerability, I've learned, is actually a step towards self-actualization and confidence. Being vulnerable isn't foolish. It's our truest measure of courage. Vulnerability for many of us is a dark and scary place. It's what we spend years and even decades trying to conceal from other people. And as Brene Brown would say... We have to strive to show up and let ourselves be seen. Not just any selves, our true selves. Vulnerability is the source of hope, empathy, accountability, and authenticity. The darkness that I spoke about, it shrouds the idea of vulnerability. The idea of who we are behind the mask that we wear. And yes, everyone wears the vulnerability mask. The darkness does not have power over the light that we have in ourselves the true selves that we are is our light and this light would not exist without the darkness being able to cast aside the shame and fear of what's in our dark places aka our true selves is where i think we can find true happiness vulnerability is the key to opening that door if you're interested in learning more about vulnerability and especially Brené's work which i Highly recommend. She has a book that I've read twice, and I absolutely love it. It's called Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. I think it's a great read for anyone of any age in any situation. Again, highly recommend. And if we're going to talk about books, then I have to talk about the good book. Lesson number 19 is a Bible verse, and it's one of the few Bible verses that I have In my head from memory, but you know, I grew up in the South and I grew up in a church, so say what you will, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in the Bible and a lot of great verses that have foundationally changed who I am as a person and how I approach life. So, lesson number 19 is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, my favorite Bible verse of all time. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, Walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Now, I always interpreted this Bible verse not as, Oh my God, the devil's going to get you. Let's break it down piece by piece. So, first part, be sober, be vigilant. This sounds to me like, keep a clear mind, be aware of what you're doing, and do it consistently. Second part, because your adversary the devil. Now, this can mean the devil himself, you know, big red scary guy with horns, whatever. Or it can mean the demons of life that bring you down. Laziness, mediocrity, gluttony, hatred, whatever it may be. Your adversary, the devil, or the demons of life, will do the third part. As a roaring lion, not just subtly there, but in your face as a roaring lion, walketh about, walking about, seeking whom he may devour, whom he may consume. These demons are constant, and they seek to consume our lives. At every turn, and with every decision we make, it's easy to default to the decisions that require the least amount of effort and to be the least good human being possible. It is easier to be lazy than it is to grind your face off. It's easier to shoot for the bar than try to surpass the bar. It's easier to fall back on hatred than to lead with love. Be sober, be vigilant, a.k.a every action has a consequence every choice has weight every decision impacts who you become i want to speak on decisions here because there is one tiny little decision that i think is a huge indicator of who we are as people lesson number 20 put your grocery cart back in the corral and if you didn't know the corral is what holds all the shopping carts i've been informed that a lot of people don't know what that is but You put the grocery cart back in the corral like you would put horses in a corral. Now, I read about the shopping cart theory, and the shopping cart theory is a true test to see if a person is actually a good human or not. As a former grocery store worker back in my Piggly Wiggly days in high school, if you're not from the South, Piggly Wiggly is like a local grocery store chain. I can really appreciate the grocery cart theory because I've been that kid that has to go get the grocery carts from people who don't bring them back inside or don't put them in the corral. The theory essentially presents the idea like this, and I quote, To return a shopping cart to the corral, which is an easy, convenient task, and one which we all recognize is the correct, appropriate thing to do. To return the cart is objectively right. There aren't situations other than dire emergencies in which a person isn't able to return their cart. Simultaneously, it is not illegal to abandon your shopping cart. Therefore the cart presents itself as the apex example of whether a person will do what is right without being forced to do it No one will punish you for not returning the shopping cart No one will fine you or kill you for not returning it You must return the shopping cart out of the goodness of your own heart because it is the right thing to do Theoretically if you cannot do this simple thing you are no better than a base animal while I don't find that necessarily true I fundamentally agree with the theory that you can probably guess how a person is depending on whether or not they put the shopping cart back. Funny enough I went on a lunch date with a girl this summer and after I had to go to Target to get some groceries. It was packed so I had to park pretty far out away from the corrals away from Target itself so we go in I get the groceries and of course it starts pouring rain because I'm in South Florida and it rains every 20 minutes i finish unloading the groceries in my truck, and I begin to walk the cart back to the corral, which is a good 20-second walk away. Not that big of a deal unless it's raining. So, eventually, I get back in my truck, and she says to me after I get back, I can't believe you actually walked the cart all the way over there. I would have just left it. (laughs) So, yeah. Put your damn grocery carts back. Now, for these last four lessons, I really don't want to give a crazy amount of context or insight because I think it really needs to be interpreted by each person and their situations. So lesson number 21 is busyness is overrated. Doing one thing is underrated. Doing a bunch of things is not the same thing as taking action. Trust me, living an entrepreneurial life out of college, this is one that I really take to heart now. Having your focus split in 27 directions might seem like you're being productive, but it's not. I think in our society, we've fallen into a trap of busyness and overworking ourselves. And what's worse, we have mistaken all this busyness as an equivalent to having an important life. The idea is, oh, look how busy I am. If I'm doing all this work, I must be doing something important. And by extension, people equivocate, I must be important because I'm so busy. A big part of my job honestly, is not doing my job. I'm a creative. It's doing nothing besides stimulating my mind. Doing nothing really makes me good at my job. So I've had to balance the I want to do everything with I need to do nothing. So are you staying busy? And if you are, ask yourself why. Lesson 22 of 24 is one of the most simple lessons, but one of the most important lesson 22 is keep it simple stupid we run into anxiety i think when we try to overcomplicate things or we let a complicated idea overwhelm us success often is just about doing the work consistently and not being perfect and how do you do more work you simplify it It's easy enough you automate you simplify People always ask me, Austin, I want to lose weight, or I want to tone up, or I want to get muscle, I want to get strong, whatever it is with fitness. When in doubt, simplify, simplify, simplify. You want to lose weight? Eat less crap, eat less frequently, or eat less food. Very simple. Want to be stronger? Lift more weight. Want to be a better writer? Write more. There is no special life hack or tactic that substitutes for just simply doing the work. These stupidly simple things will get you further than sitting around and deliberating some perfect plan that you will never execute. Lesson number 23, talking about plans and preparation. A lack of preparation on someone else's part does not constitute an emergency on your part. And in a social perspective, this is one that is much easier to enforce. And if you don't get the idea, it's essentially, you don't have your crap together, that's not my problem. I'm not going to throw everything in my life away just to save your ass. So socially, this is much easier to do. You have a friend that falls through a lot on plans or constantly needs you to help them get their life together. You should probably analyze that relationship. Because this is how it is, honestly, and I've lost a lot of friendships this way. But people need life to punch them in the face because of their lack of preparation. People who aren't prepared need to come to grips with what life is really about. You do not want to be the person that's standing in the way of the punch that wakes somebody up to their own BS, otherwise you're the one who's going to be filling the punch. This is a tricky situation though in the professional world, especially if it's with one of your superiors. But standing your ground and calling it what it is brings you a ton of leverage in business Favors, to me, are total BS. Favors are merely the other person saying, hey, I didn't account for this and I need you to help me carry the slack. And I might remember that you did it, but probably not. Again, your time is the most valuable asset that you own. Just make sure that the people who demand the most of it from you are aware that you value your time. On that note, we come to number 24, the last one. And this one comes from right when I began studying Stoicism. It's one of the first things that I came across. Some people are taken aback by it, and other people are motivated by it. And I really encourage you to be in that second group of people. Lesson number 24, the final lesson. Memento Mori, which means remember that you will die. Last year, I buried a parent. And that's about all it took to make me realize that every day, is a day of value, of urgency. The notion of laziness, of tiredness, it disappears with memento mori. It's also a nice reminder that we are all mortal, and life is delicate, it's unpredictable, and so are we. Treat your time as a gift, and don't waste it on the trivial and vain shit that is out there, and there's plenty of it. Death doesn't make life pointless, but instead, it makes it purposeful. So 24 lessons for 24 years. I'll be releasing a PDF image with this whole list because everyone, including myself, can use a nice reminder every now and then. I hope that this podcast, filled with tons of wisdom from other people, and hopefully some semi-intelligent moments from myself can help you out. Every week is different for each person, so what doesn't touch you this week could really speak to you a month from now, a year from now, whatever it may be. Again, if you're here At the end of the podcast, I appreciate you so much. 24 is weird for me because I'm starting to feel older, like actually older, but we're still working on the whole figuring out life thing, and I don't know if that's ever going to come. The only thing I want for my birthday is people to share this podcast and for me to be able to help you out in any way possible, which hopefully, if you share this podcast, it can have some degree of impact and helpfulness for each person that listens to it. Even if you don't share it, it's all cool, no expectation again, just listening to the podcast means the world to me. And because it's my birthday, and because you're here already, and I know you're going to keep listening because if you made it this far, God bless you, I want to dedicate a portion of the end of this podcast to the people who have meant most to me. First of all, to my parents, Mama, I know we've been through many ups and downs over my 24 years, but... I'm proud of you, still the same, the way you are of me. And dad, I know up in heaven you're looking down on me and you're happy because I'm trying to help other people. And I'm trying to take some of the things that you've taught me and help out other people in any way that I can. To the amazing teachers and coaches that I had in high school and college, first with Miss Oliphant, you completely shaped my outlook and career in so many different ways that you may not ever understand. And I know you might not even hear this podcast, but I do appreciate you, and I hope somebody can let you know that. Ms. Wester, thank you for always reminding us that kindness is more important than any other school subject. To Coach Casey, to Dax, to Far. thank you, all three of you independently, for being models of truth and life coaches of a sort to us high school kids and for being the people that always encouraged me and others to be more than just the status quo. To some of my college professors, to Dr. Adam Brooks, thank you for genuinely just being yourself at all times and for reminding me that being myself is one of my greatest strengths. There's so many more things I could say that you've taught me, but you've been one of my greatest influences in and out of college. To Ms. Henley, again, the great mama hen of Capstone Agency, don't know if you'll ever hear this, but My senior year was the only year I got to know you, and I wish it would have been much longer, but so much from being in the agency to being in class with you, and really showing me what it takes to be an advertising public relations professional. To Darren Griffin, the absolute badass who I don't think has any social media at all, but maybe this podcast will reach him at some point, thanks for being one of my great role models senior year, allowing me to do research with you for having the most unique classes I have ever taken in my life. And now to my friends, and try not to get emotional on this first one, but to Chris for being closer to me than my own family and for treating me like your family for nearly a decade and a half now. Brother, I'd I'd take a bullet for you, honestly. To shame that crazy kid that moved freshman year of high school to our little small town for as crazy as you've been at times, You've constantly reminded me that I should be confident in who I am and honestly stop overthinking the whole simplicity thing. You, you influenced a lot of that. Paige, thank you for being the friend who can pick up a conversation right where we left off from months before and the unbreakable trust that we've had since we were awkward little freshmen. Taylor, thank you for being the person that I never would have guessed would be such a great friend and a confidant since I've been in college. And I have a lot of great fraternity brothers, but three in particular, Connor, for being my first ever friend in college from the day we sat together in Morgan Hall on the bench and you said, hey, what's up, I'm Connor. Your friendship really shaped a lot of my college experience and I'm grateful for you as a friend, as a brother, somebody who's always been there. And to Riley and Brendan, my two closest pledge brothers, It's been a crazy journey we've been on and I know we're on our respective routes now but you're two people that I know got my back all the way. Thank you guys for being you and for all the great memories over the years. Okay I'm I'm done with all the dedications all the cheesiness now there are dozens of other people that I could thank but for respect to your time we'll give them a simple thank you because I know that most of you might not know who these people are but again We have to thank the people around us because they help shape us for who we become, at least in the good ways a lot of times. I appreciate you listening to episode four of this podcast. Remember to live a life where you're always gaining, where you're always gaining, where you're always gaining.